We're on to mission, the third of our values. And we're, it's perhaps an unorthodox, it may sound like an unorthodox place, but it really isn't. We're going to be reading from Exodus 19, verses 4 to 6, short passage. You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be, my, be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. Okay, so... At this point, Exodus 19, let's recap the story. Moses had first met God at Mount Sinai. Mount Horeb and Mount Sinai are used interchangeably in the Bible, just so you're aware. Um, and he meets him there in the, the burning bush. Everybody remembers that story, probably? And God there commissions him. He says, Moses, you and your brother Aaron are to go and lead Israel out of Egypt, and don't worry, I'll do all the heavy lifting. And Moses has now accomplished that. He has accomplished through, God has accomplished through Moses, the liberation of Israel from Egypt. And now Moses has returned to the mountain with the people. He says, here we are. And now they settle there for roughly 12 months. For the next 12 months, they will be sitting at this mountain, receiving their marching orders. They're going to be fed the vision and the plan for the future. And we are fortunate. We can now sit in and eavesdrop on this mission meeting here. And here, what, is, what God is telling Israel, the, their mission is, what is the purpose of being the people of God in the world? And the reason we can listen in is because the mission hasn't changed. It's almost, well, it is, it's identical, even if some of the little nuances have changed. We'll talk about that. So we're going to look in here and see what can we learn about our mission and what this value of mission means for Redeemer. And we're going to see, I'm sorry, we're back to three points, three things. We're going to see mission's authority, the mission's work, what is the work, and then mission's power. So the authority we have to do mission, the work, what is the actual, what, mission, what is the mission, and then the power, how do we actually accomplish it? So let's move into the authority. So God says a lot of things to Israel, and in this passage he, said, he then qualifies it and says, Israel, Moses, I can tell you to do these things because all the earth is mine. Verse 5, right? All the earth is mine. This is a claim of sovereignty. God comes and he says, I can tell you to do as I please because it's all mine. The whole thing is mine. And it's important we wrestle and understand what the sovereignty of God means because it's a word that gets thrown around a lot. And I don't know if we understand the biblical definition sometimes versus the human one, the earthly one, the worldly one. So let's use examples, two examples to show it. So sometimes we refer to this woman as the sovereign, right? She's called the sovereign. That's literally one of her titles. It's Queen Elizabeth. And in theory, she's our queen. And yet, how much sovereignty does she have? Because I don't really, to be frank, I don't care what she has to say to me. I don't. I mean, practically speaking, I mean, what is it? She can't, do, she can't make us do anything. She has no real authority here to, to, to bully around Canada or to, yeah, to help us for that matter. So what kind of sovereignty does she have if she can't do anything? So is it wise that we still call her the sovereign? Is it just a title? Maybe. I'm not knocking anybody who's a, a royal family fan, by the way. Um, but it's a questionable point. Is that what we mean by sovereignty? sovereignty? Is it just a title? Well, no, because we also think about nations as sovereign, right? 
Canada, uh, Nigeria, Spain, doesn't matter. We call them sovereign nations. And that's getting a little closer because we think that in our nations we have a certain degree of sovereignty, freedom to do what we want. We have given our government certain rights that they can exercise over us to protect us. And people may be thinking, are they protecting us right now? But this is what we've done, right? Nations can do a certain degree of free, they have freedom to do as they please in their borders, but not unlimited power. We can resist. And not just that, there's certain times in history where we have in, stepped in and said, no, we have things like sanctions, embargoes, war. We can stop other nations from doing as they please. So are our nations really sovereign if they can't do everything they want? Because the biblical understanding of sovereignty is very simple. Sovereignty and power and authority in the Bible are the ability to accomplish purpose. Okay? The ability to accomplish purpose. Somebody may say, I'm going to get married to this, this young man, but he's not a Christian, but I really, I'm doing it because I really want to have a good, happy life. Okay? The purpose of the marriage is, they think, to have a good, happy life. But if you've been married for any number of seconds, you know, <laughs> I was going to say years, but I think it happens quicker than that. But no, marriages are wonderful. But just because you intend the marriage to be happy doesn't mean it's going to be. In fact, it's going to be hard, even if it's happy, right? And if you marry somebody who's not of the same faith of you, it's going to be even harder. Because at some point, those issues are going to mean someone is going to lose their faith, either their faith in atheism or their faith or in Christianity or whatever. And so just because you purpose to have a good marriage doesn't mean you're going to have it. So you may have the freedom to choose who you want, but you don't have the power to get your purpose done. See the difference? You are not sovereign. None of you are. My body, my choice, still not sovereign. You can't accomplish purpose. Only one being can be sovereign. Because if two can, then one of them isn't sovereign because one could supersede the other, right? One being must be sovereign. And the Bible's claim is it's Yahweh. He says, all the earth is mine. And he has no problem saying it. And not only does he say it, but then he does something incredible. He takes all of this sovereignty and power. And he then says... Okay, I have the right and the ability to do as I please in the world. And now I'm going to create these little creatures, Genesis 1 and 2. And I'm going to give them some of my sovereignty. I'm not going not, to, not, they're not me, but I'm going to give them a certain degree of authority and power in the world to be like me in the world. They are now going to press into the world and they're going to continue doing what I have been doing. God sets up the world. Take my Old Testament class, you'll cover this. He creates the world as a cosmic temple for him to dwell in with his people in harmony. Something goes wrong, of course, but the point that he gives is saying, I'm going to make you co-regents with me in the world, and I'm going to give you my authority so that you can subdue and rule over the world as I do. God wanted to make a world that would allow for us to flourish. We are then given the authority and the mandate and the sovereignty to do the same, to create a world where humans flourish in it. Now, Part of that is this message of reconciliation, right? This authority to go into the world and say, hey, what you think about God and reality is wrong, and the Bible has it right, and this guy has it right. You should believe this. The world does not like being told it's not right. So right away, you find a problem with us Christians because the authority we've been given to do something is contrary to the world's desire. In fact, this, age, this day and age is even worse because we are told that any time you try to tell somebody what to believe, it's cultural imperialism. 
You have no right to go to somebody and say what they think about God and truth is wrong. Who are you? What authority do you have to do that? Stop it. All they see is imperialism. You're trying to impose your views on someone else. To this sort of thing, we have two objections. Well, many more, but two. Let's start with two. One logical, one theological. The logical one is, you cannot stop me from evangelizing without evangelizing. That person, when they say, you shouldn't tell people what to think, they're telling me what to think. They're telling me that I should think I shouldn't tell people what to think. You see, there's a logical problem. You can't tell me not to evangelize without trying to evangelize me and win me to your worldview. So there's a logical problem here. We all evangelize. Get over it, and let's start doing it biblically and, and shrewdly, wisely, with respect. But then we have a theological issue. We should be sensitive to the world who doesn't like that we evangelize. I can appreciate that. I understand I'm sensitive to it, but I don't obey it. I only obey the sovereign. In fact, how could I do it otherwise? This is one of the great things about the Bible that says every knee will bow. When, when, when he, when, when God, if God is sovereign, he can accomplish his purpose. Listen, friends, all of us will bend a knee to God. The question is whether you do it before it becomes impossible to do otherwise. See, it's nothing, you can't say, I'm worshiping you. And C.S. Lewis says it beautifully as always. He says, there's no sense in asking for credit for kneeling when it's become impossible to stand. When you're forced to bow down, don't say you're now being a worshipful servant. So we come and we answer and we worship, we, we evangelize because the, the guy who owns everything had told us to. The sovereign said so. We have, so our authority to evangelize, our authority for mission of the church comes from God. And if we, and listen, let's face it, there is a sense where humans do, we tweak that, right? We, we want to evangelize because we want to look good, we want to grow the church, we want more money, we want more fame, whatever else we want. So we can blow this as a church. But as, so long as we keep our mission focused on the authority God has given us, it'll help. So that's the first thing. Mission's authority comes from God. Very simple. Amazing, I had to talk 10 minutes to tell you that. I could have just said it. But it helps. So the second thing is the work. What does it mean? What, are, what work are we called to? What is the mission of God, the missio Dei? Well, in this passage, it's brilliant. It, well, we're given three things within this, so it's like a six-point sermon. Um, but I'll go quickly. So the work, what is that mission we're called to? There's, he gives it to us so beautifully here in three spots. There's a content, a scope, and then a method. Okay, I'm going to put it up on the screen to try to help you follow, because I know drinking from a fire hose with me. So, the content we've heard already. This is, and it's in this passage. Israel's, all the, so many of the writings of Israel, so much of what they, 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 the God of Israel is the God of the Red Sea. You read Jewish writings, and even to this day, they are trusting on that God. The content of the message is very simple. Israel, your job is to tell the world who God is and what he has done. That has not changed we still tell the world what God is, or who God is, and what he has done. So that's the content. So I, I move quickly there. But then we move into the scope. So who, what is the mission field? Is it local, international, is it online, what is it? And this passage, I'm gonna, you're going to follow me on a word study, but it's, uh, I get so excited by these things. When, look at what he says. God uses all this power and authority to do what? I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. So he takes Israel, brings them to himself, and then he sets them apart and makes them a holy nation. 
Now, the word holy nation, it's important. It's important to know the words God uses. Because all through the Old Testament, Israel refers to themselves with different Hebrew words. And here there's a different one being used, and it's not by accident. Let me show you. So let's look at the Psalms, for instance, because that's where Israel talks about themselves a lot. So we'll put a few up on the screen here. Psalm 28, verse 9, says, Save your people. And the word for people is a Hebrew word, am, A-M, am, the am, the people of God. Used a lot to talk about Israel. Next, another word is in Psalm 85. Lord, you are favorable to your land, because Israel and the land are so connected. And the word land is Eretz in Hebrew. Same word, though God created the Hashemayim, the heavens, and the Eretz, the earth. So there the people of God are the Am, they are the land, the Eretz. And then another very common one is when, again, Psalm 85, it says, speak to your people, speak to your saints. And the word saints is the word Hasid, which means faithful. So Israel uses a lot of words to talk about who they are the people of God, the nation, and so on. But here in this, this passage, something odd is happening. When he says, you're, God says, I'm going to make you a goy kadosh. A goy is, you've probably heard the word, you the goy. Uh, it's a Yiddish term that gets used a lot in the Jewish community still. It means Gentiles. It's the word that is almost exclusively used to speak of nations other than Israel. And here God is saying, I'm making you a holy goy. Okay? And like, why? Here's what he's saying. It's, it's incredible. Out of all the goyim, that's the, the plural for goy, of all the goyim, all the nations in the world, I have taken one goy out of it for myself. And Israel, don't forget, you're only special because I pulled one out of many clumps of clay. Could have pulled anyone. You are a goy. Don't get too high on your horse, church. You're a goy pulled out from the goyim to serve them. And just, and this is why the priesthood is important. Just as he has these 12 tribes and he pulls one tribe out of, the, out of them and says, Levites, your job is now to serve the other 11. So in this passage, he is saying, I have pulled you one goy out and your job is now to serve the rest of the goyim. And the language is important. They need to know they're just like everybody else, but called to something different. That is what you and I are. And so when we ask, what is the scope of the mission? the entire world, the goyim, all the nations. So we can't ever simply say, well, we're called only as a church to serve Niagara. It's just not true. That's not true. Nowhere in scripture is someone called to only. Now you could change the, the rates. You could say, I'm only a little here, whatever. But it's a healthy part of the Christian walk to serve the nations, the entire nations. So the scope is large. Now, the method, if that's the scope, how do we actually serve them? And we're given the model in this idea of a priesthood. Okay, we are called a priesthood. And there's another beautiful word. It's Hebrew, but listen. It's the mamlakah kohen, kohen. Mamlakah kohen, the kingdom of priests. Cool, I love the word. Now we're called to be a kingdom of priests. Now think about what this is. Priests are given special access to God in order to mediate between God and man. Okay, so they're given special access to God but the priest's job is to weigh both. You need to know the word of God so well that you can communicate it down to the earth. But you also need to know the needs of people so much that you could intercede on their behalf to God. The, whole, the high priest used to have to go into the Holy, the temple of, uh, Holy of Holies with a scarf. And on it was embroidered the names of all the tribes. Because it was understood that when he stepped into the Holy of Holies, he came as the people. 
okay? You're not divorced from the people. You come as them. And so this is very important to us because it means that, okay, we all fall on one side or the other, right? Some of us are prone to being very good Pharisees. We're very good at knowing the law. We know the rules. We can smell a, smell a stinker from a mile away. We know when somebody has said something wrong, believed something wrong. And that's part of it. We have to know God's word so we communicate the truth to the world. But we also need to remember that we're called not one to each, but we all collectively and individually are also asked to know people so well that we can then intercede and go to God as one of them, weeping for them even. And the reason we have to balance these two is because if you fall on either side too strongly, you become ineffective and, to be frank, obnoxious. So let's use the examples. If you're a person, and we're all, listen, I'm on, both, on a good day, I'm on either side. So I understand it. If you're the type who says, I know my scripture and I feel called to be the sort who is here to root out issues and to bring truth to the church and to people, that's good, okay? That's good. But here's a, here's a tip. If you find that you have been very good at hammering people, but you've been terrible at converting people, it's probably because you're not listening to God. Because people like that, and I can be one of them, we're great at breaking arguments and winning them, but we're terrible at winning hearts. Terrible. If you haven't been brought people, if you're not winsome enough that people are coming to Christ for his beauty, but only terrified, maybe you're leaning too heavily on one side. And yet if you're on the other, and you only care about people and say, I don't know about the theology, I just want to love people, I want to serve people. What you're going to find, maybe, is you're going to have a lot of people who gather around you. You know, you're going to be a magnet for needy people. They're going to come around you and they're going to know that you'll talk to them forever, you'll give them money if you need to, you'll do everything for them. But you're going to find they don't change. They stay needy, constantly. And that's maybe, maybe, because you're not leaning heavily enough on the truth that will move them and grow them. So we're called to balance these two. And that's the method. We have this authority we're given. Then we're given a message of reconciliation. Then we're told the scope is the world, and the method is to be priests, to mediate, and to take seriously this calling to know the culture, to know the people, and to get really close to them. Christ didn't settle by reading books, right? He didn't say, I'm going to come to the earth, and I'll read some books about people, and I'll report back to you, Father about how it is. No, he got here and he took it on. He, he sat in the muck in the mire. Can you imagine the king of the universe having to be told how to live by a mom? Don't touch that. I might get COVID. He, but he needs the, what humility he took. We have to be willing to get in with people. So that's the method. So that's the work of the mission, the content, the scope of the method. Now, what's the power? So we have a big problem here. There's actually a very big problem in this passage that you should have seen, you probably have seen, and we well, we could ignore it, but why would we? The problem is it sounds very conditional. It sounds a lot like if you perform, you'll belong, right? Let's, let's just read it. Verse 5. Therefore, if you will obey, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession. Pretty clear, isn't it? If you obey, you'll be treasured. If you don't obey, you won't be. That's not the gospel, is it? That's law. So what is he saying? Do I have to now recant the gospel? No. Look at the very first, the verse just before it. So the, this chapter begins with, and look at the tenses. I don't know if I put this next one in bold or not, did I? Oh, I did, it's in blue. Look at the tenses he uses, it's always past tense. You yourselves have seen, past tense, what I did to the Egyptians, and how I bore you, past tense, on eagles' wings, and brought you, past tense, on, to, uh, to myself. So 
What he is saying is this. Past tense, salvation's done, Israel. You're out of Egypt. You're here with me at Mount Sinai. You already belong in the covenant. But if you want to enjoy the covenant, you have to obey. Now, there's a difference, a very important difference here. If somebody, this is going to condemn me. If someone was to buy me a gym membership, don't do it, because I know what that means. I know the subtlety, crafty people. Um, So if somebody was to buy me a gym membership, I could say thank you very much, and I could do nothing with it, and for a year, I would belong to the gym. I'd be be part of the gym. However, if I actually want to enjoy the membership and to really be a member of that gym, I have to participate. I have to go. I not only have to go, but while I'm at the gym, if I really want to get the benefits of it, I better not be a jerk at the gym. I better wipe wipe this stuff down. I better wait for my turn. I better not sneeze on people. Like, I better be good. Part of enjoying the benefits of a gym membership is participating and following the rules. If I go and I don't obey, then I'm going to find it's a pretty rotten place to be. They always expect me to wipe things down and not sneeze on people. It's terrible. Um, I've never sneezed on people. I don't know why it's coming to mind. But do you see the difference? God is saying, you already belong, Israel. But if you want to be my, begin to experience what it means to thrive, to be my treasured possession, you have to obey. Otherwise, you're not, it's not going to get any better for you. And, well, so much more I want to say. So if we don't obey, we have a problem, right? We won't enjoy it. And this is, I think, why we see so many Christians who are miserable. Who, and if they're not miserable, they're secretly miserable and wonder, How come everybody else seems to be having experiences with God? How come everybody else's marriage seems like it's okay? And of course, it's not true, right? A lot of people's struggling. But that's the impression. And we think, there must be something more. Maybe I'm missing it. Maybe, like, something, they feel like they're not thriving. And I think it's because they're not obeying. Now, the problem, of course, is this. We can't obey. We don't obey. So does that mean... (laughs) We're just going to have, you know, marginal Christian lives. We're never going to really thrive. We're just going to kind of peter around up and down the valleys and hills. Is that what we're destined to? Is this the message we take to the campuses and to the schools? Come and join a mediocre life where it'll be all right, but it might not be, you know? Is this, <laughs> like, it's not the best sales pitch, but, it, but if it is a real sales pitch, then that's what it is. But is that what we're being told here? Well, it's not. And the answer comes... It's in scripture, but let me use an example from a C.S. Lewis book. Everybody knows the Chronicles of Narnia, and if you haven't, there's this, the first book, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, there's a scene where Aslan, the lion, who is the Christ figure, dies for the sake of Edmund, this boy who has sinned. Boy, uh, Edmund has betrayed his family and his friends, so he is destined to die. That's the punishment for what he's done. Aslan then comes and says, let me die in his place. And the white witch is happy to let that happen because she wants to be rid of this lion. Then, he is raised from the dead. He comes back to life again in a very shameless allusion to the cross. And there's two young girls who witness it all. Okay? Lucy and Susan are watching it. And here they ask him, what's happening? What does this all mean? What does it mean that you've, you've come back to life? And here's his response. It means, said Aslan, that, the wit, that though the witch knew the deep magic, there is a magic deeper still which she did not know. Her knowledge goes back only to the dawn of time, But if she could have looked a little further back into the stillness and the darkness before time dawned, she would have read there a different incantation. She would have known that when a willing victim who had committed no treachery was killed in a traitor's stead, the table, 
the altar, would crack, and death itself would start working backwards. The deeper magic for Israel in this passage in you and I comes in Genesis 15, okay? 54 chapters earlier. 54 chapters earlier, Abraham is struggling. He is given a similar spiel. You're going to be a father to the nations. The whole world will be impacted by you. And Abraham is like, what? How? I can't even have a child. How is this possible? And God says, does this incredible thing where he has this ritual. You may have heard me talk about this before. He says, Abraham, go grab some animals and cut them in half. And then set the animals up in an aisle on either side in rows. And he says, let's make a covenant. Abraham, he actually says in the Hebrew very clearly, know for certain that I will do everything I've said. Know for certain. So when people say faith isn't certain, we have to at least reckon with what that means. God is saying, know for certain that I will accomplish everything I have said. And Abraham's wise here, I think, to an extent, because he says, God, I have two problems. I'm not sure I trust you. Not good. I'm not sure I know you. I don't know if you'll be the God you say you are. But then wisely he says, you know, I'm not so sure I can be the guy you're saying. How am I going to be this leader? How am I going to do I can't. How could I possibly be this? And so God then sets up this covenant and says, let's make a deal. He says, if I fail to do this, then let it happen to me what's happened to these animals. So God walks through the center aisle, which is symbolic of him saying, if I fail to do what I've said, I will die. Normally, the other member of the covenant would do the same because that's a pact, right? If either of us break the pact, you die. God never asks Abraham to go through it. Only God walks through. And what he is saying is, Abraham, if I fail to do it, let me die. And Abraham, if you fail to be the people you say, I think you are, let me die. And of course, we know what happens. They fail to be the right people. And Christ comes and he dies. He pays the price for it. So that, almost as if he knew this sermon was going to come, listen to what Jesus says at the end of the Gospel of Mark, or Matthew. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Because Christ bore that penalty, he then is given the authority of saying it's all mine, and I am now sending you out. Abraham, well, not even before. Um, Cain and Abel, Adam, fail. Abraham fails. So God says, I'm, going to not, I'm not going to work through individuals. I'm going to work through a family. The family fails. The nation fails. So he says, I can't let this keep happening. I am going to come and do it for you. So Christ comes and lives perfectly, dies sacrificially, so that then he has the authority to come to us and say, now go, go and do this. And not only that, he gives us this comfort of saying, not only gives us the mission, but then he says at the very end, I'm with you always until the end of the age so that it's not just the power and the mandate but he comes alongside and he suffers with us struggles with us through all of this and the spirit comes to us and reminds us through our worship together and through the sermons and through reading and through community groups all these things the spirit reminds us that you have because you belong you have authority and because you have authority you are called to use it and you don't even need to worry that you're going to succeed because you're not but Christ has conquered for us so we can be bold and share the gospel when, we're not, when people don't want it. Well, within reason, we want to be shrewd, right? We want to be wise. But all of this mission is rooted in that. Let's pray.